and welcome to another edition of the Beer Ivana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. <laughs> uh, with me, of course, is Jeff Allworth, author of the newly released Secrets of Master Brewers, as well as old favorites like the Beer Bible and Cider Made Simple. You can find him blogging at Beer Ivana and writing at All About Beer Magazine. And with me is Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University. Uh, just returned from Oregon State University, in fact. Ugh. Hot and sweaty. Yeah, it's Friday afternoon. <laughs> Actually, it's Friday evening now. Yeah. Most of the afternoon we spent getting back from Oregon State University. Oh, yeah. Memorial Day weekend, Friday afternoons, coming home. Ooh, I had a late meeting there, which was unfortunate, so I couldn't leave until 4 o'clock. I know. And you're a trooper. Here you are, taking one for the team, doing a blog or a hey. pod. That's right. You got to pods will save us so you gotta you gotta carve out time for the pod Ooh, a deep cut i like it <laughs> by the way uh i'm because of my commute i'm a i'm a, a pod connoisseur ah and uh i listen to pods a lot and one of the things i realized you know we're not we're not very good at this. <laughs> uh, most pods will say something like if you if if you like the pod uh-huh. you should subscribe to us and you should rate us on itunes apparently that's good for us right so so, so if you like the pod Subscribe, rate us on iTunes. What else are you supposed to do? Don't, don't you like it? No, you like YouTube videos. Okay. Uh, tell all your friends to subscribe and uh, mail us yeah. stuff. I so, don't know. Yeah, no, I don't know. One of the problems, You're right. We're terrible. One of the problems with our pods is, is that I'm the producer, and that's that's evident um, in the low quality of our pod. So I actually like to listen to pods that are really well produced, um, and typically a lot of those are coming from places like NPR. Yeah. And speaking of... NPR, and I want to mention this because uh, this is relevant to our audience. Um, they have a, a, a pod that's relatively recent. I'm not sure how long it's been out, but it's called How I Built This. It's uh-huh. hosted by Guy Raz, um, who does, I think, what, Audio Lab or something else. Uh, but it's all about entrepreneurs and the, and the companies they built. They basically tell the origin stories of the companies, and that's how they do it. Uh, and there is a really interesting one um, with Jim, Jim Cook of uh, Boston Beer Company. Cool. Uh, which is fun to listen to, um, regardless of what you think about him and his company. It's really interesting to hear how he got started and how he goes. So, and uh, probably a little bit different than the normal Jim Cook interviews we've heard because it's not coming from the beer perspective, more from the general perspective. I bet it's interesting to listen to. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's also it was also interesting because um, I watched as the Ithaca Beer. I mentioned a few times as the Ithaca Beer Company got. Um, off the ground and it was started by a young entrepreneur and just all of the shoe leather you know the the door-to-door tavern to tavern right tap handle the tap handle sales you had to do is you know what what jim did at the beginning too anyway so um just a little shout out to the how i built this podcast it it was a while ago you have to scroll scroll down to find jim but but he's there and i i recommend it all right well we'll have to listen to more podcasts and rip them off although you know our our music cues are just best in the business. <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> <laughs> there is there is uh, uh, some production value. In That's our, right. Uh, well, some production. Yes. the value might be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, it's Friday afternoon. We're going to start talking tonight about malt. Um, in recent episodes, we have interviewed hop researcher Tom Shellhammer and paid a visit to the Imperial Imperial Organic Yeast Labs. Uh, today, we'll continue in this vein by going for the third ingredient, uh, examining the foundation of beer, malted barley. There is a wonderful movement happening in the U.S. where locally grown, often heirloom barley is malted in small artisanal malt houses. These are springing up all over the country, from New York to North Carolina to Oregon. And on today's podcast, we will play an interview Jeff did with Seth 
Klan? Klan? I think it's Klan. Seth Klan, owner and malt master at Mecca Mecca Grade Estate Malt in Madras, Oregon. Good good job on the pronunciation. You mark yourself as a proper Oregonian. <laughs> I knew you'd give me hell if I blew, if I, if I blew that in Madras. Yes, it's it's spelled Madras, but pronounced Madras. <laughs> the way, uh, yeah, where Madras cloth comes from. That's right. Uh, okay, so we will get to that interview. I'm looking forward to it. Um, but before we do that, of course, as always, at first, first we've got to get to the news. In our first item, uh, we learned last week that Peter Buchart, the longtime brewmaster at New Belgium, uh, announced that he was leaving to start his own brewery. Um, this is becoming a bit of a pattern. We have seen in recent years a number of high-profile brewers who've done this. Um, names folks will, rec- will recognize. John Harris of Full Sail, mm-hmm. Mitch Steele of Stone, Larry Sidor of Deschutes, Chuck Silva of Green Flash. All these guys uh, have done that to start their own breweries. Some of them are up and running. Some are still planning. Um, and uh, so Bukert leaves uh, after 21 years, and he was one of those real rock stars. Uh, he, he started the barrel program there. He was one of the first people to get a, a serious fooder program going. Mm-hmm. Um, and he took New Belgium to the eighth largest brewery in the country. That's not craft breweries. That's just the eighth largest. It's a big brewery. Yeah. And before that, people who know this, uh, like this alone, is makes him a badass. He was at Rodenbach, so ah. he's like a he's a big big rock star. But he is leaving to go to a little startup and do his own thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess it's about creative control, or maybe it's just about time to do something new. Yeah, I did a I did a blog post on this, and I talked to a couple of folks about that. And I think it is about creative control and uh, control over. The whole process. The whole process. Mitch Steele, who's working on a, mm-hmm. uh, his new brewery in, in Atlanta, you know, he talked about how you. It's not only control over the products, but it's control over the name, what the brewery looks like, what the pub is going to be like, like every right. Everything. The whole vision. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, I totally, I totally get that entirely. Um, okay, and then the second item we have here is that according to recent numbers from the Brewers Association, twenty-five of the top fifty largest craft breweries per their definition, so this doesn't include a couple of notables like the Craft Brewers Alliance and uh, and New Belgium too, right? Nope, New Belgium's still in there. New Belgium's still in there, okay. Uh, They either didn't grow or they saw sales decline. This is consistent with everything else we've seen, but sobering news. So these these big craft breweries are starting to have trouble. Um, And we've talked about this a lot, so we don't need to keep talking about this, but uh, one thing I thought um, uh, I was considering... Uh, taking a little trip down to uh, Astoria, Oregon, and so I was checking out the um, the local beer scene there, and Bowie Beer is there, as you well know, and it turns out that, according to their website, they're working on a Portland taproom. Oh, I didn't know that. That's very cool. Uh, well, A little a little news item for our local th- fans. This is, well, maybe I've broken the news. What happens is in a Google search, it'll show you the, the Bowie thing, and then it'll give you some sub-menu items, and it doesn't actually show up on their homepage, but if you click on the Google link, it'll then be a password-restricted page that you can't get to. Uh-huh. But it's called, like, the Portland Tap Room. So, uh, and your lovely wife, Sally, just left for the Double Mountain Tap Room, which is also which is a Hood River brewery that's got a tap room. Anyway, so here's my point, which is I wonder um, the European model is for breweries to open up tons and tons of retail outlets for themselves 
We haven't really seen that. We've seen a few tap rooms here and there, but I wonder if this is a strategy that some uh, growing, it's kind of hard for the bigger brewers maybe to sort of backfill, maybe not, but a growing brewery might think about uh, growing sort of um, through a network of, of tap rooms. Yeah, one one really good example of this is the 10 barrel branch of ABI. They, mm-hmm. they have, they're, they're opening up breweries all over the place i think they're like seven now little pubs yeah yeah so, so they, they have one that they're original in bend they have one in portland they have one in boise they're going to uh, san diego and i don't i don't know where the others are yeah so if, if the if the problem is twofold one that it's hard to be sort of the newest latest all the time and stay relevant in this ever-changing world and the second is all this competition for uh for tap room and, and retail space then just creating your own retail outlets in these areas allow you to accomplish two things one is you get a direct asset access to customers and then the second is that you can tell your story and and, and convince them that you're also cool and new and relevant so and, and you can tailor your beer to the local market and so. you can tailor your beer to the local market that's right yeah interesting okay anyway next oh no that's the end of the news <laughs> there's no be, more there's no more news sorry I, I usually try to do three items so i see why you would say that <laughs> yeah well uh, there was a there was a third thing there but it was not news uh okay so before we get to the main topic we'd like to remind you that the beer velna podcast is sponsored by guinness often we talk about one of guinness's newer products when we mention the sponsor but few beers are as heavily characterized by malt as irish stout and since we're talking about malt let's stick with the flagship brand, brand today uh guinness uh, stout, however, comes in lots of different varieties. Yeah, but the stout itself uh, is, you know, I mean, you look back uh, 20 years and, yeah, in, in most places, 20 years gets you far enough. Here in Portland, right. you're not going to go <laughs> further. But, uh, it's a black beer, right? Like, this is a really, that was a really weird thing for right. decades and decades. Right. Um, and you get black beer because uh, you you have a different malt treatment than, than the normal fizzy yellow beer. And if you look back in the history of Guinness, it's basically the the story of the evolution of the Guinness product is basically kind of the evolution of, of malting. Right. Um, originally, it was a London porter that they were brewing, mm-hmm. which was made with brown malt, this right. kind of rustic, blown, blown or brown malt, which was really hardcore. And then there was a guy, Daniel Wheeler, who figured out how to make really dark roasted malt. And uh, at about the same time, they figured out, they invented the sacra, sacra, sacrometer, the hydrometer, basically. Right. And realized that uh, only pale malts really are fermentable. And so all this brown malt was really totally unfermentable. <laughs> so then they started uh, getting rid of the uh, the brown malt, replacing right. it with pale malt. And then they had this really dark malt, which mm-hmm. they would stain it black. So it was still it was still able to be black. Right. Um, but now the flavor is changing quite a bit because the brown malt tastes a lot different than the black malt. Right. And this is happening in Dublin. It's not happening in London, interestingly. Uh, okay. So so hold on. Let's, let's back up for a second. So they, they were dumping all this brown malt in there, but they weren't actually getting any alcohol out of it. So that's not very good from a cost perspective. I think, yeah, this is one of those interesting little quirks that I'm not so so clear about because it, it, the, the London porters were barrel aged. And I think what was happening is it, they were actually fermenting. They weren't fermenting out until the Brett got to them. The Brett and right. the wild yeast in, okay. the, in the barrels. And so probably the original beer that was going to the barrels was heavily unfermented. But then you've got more yeast fermentation happening in the barrels. Yeah, but uncont- not, not, not well controlled by the brewer. So I can understand why they would want to change that into light malt that's easily fermentable and controlled. Right, controllable, and then you add some dark black stain malt to add color. 
Yeah, and also that roasty flavor. Yeah. So and this then, is this is that you've told the story of the famous black patent malt, right? Uh, I just did actually. Yeah, you, that's you what I mean. A, I mean that, this is the story, right? That guy <laughs> yeah, was yeah. the guy who patented, it and then it became black patent malt. Exactly. Okay. So if you're a if you're a home brewer and you've seen black patent malt, that patent malt, he he put a patent on on the on his roasting machine, and so it was called right. patent malt. Yeah, and so that does two things. It gives you nice color, but it also gives you that wonderful roasty flavor. But that wasn't true of the brown malts. The brown were just they were nasty, and I think <laughs> I think it was probably a terrible beer until the Brettanomyces. Uh, like ate away some of that smoky, nasty stuff. Right. But then there's one more thing. And okay. And we can, uh, we don't need to go too deeply into the whole history of Porters and Stout, though it's a fascinating history. I think when we did a pod on that way back when. That, anyway. That would I'm, be a good pod, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our old go, brains. We'll yeah, just go, keep redoing Go them. check. <laughs> if we haven't done it, let us know. We'll do one. Uh, an interesting thing happened in 1880. So keep in mind that in 1880, Ireland was... The UK, right? Mm-hmm. It was controlled by the, the UK. Um, Sorry the, about that. Yeah. The UK uh, passed a law, uh, the something something Mashton Act of 1880, which allowed people to use non uh, malted barley, to use something other than malted barley in the grist. It uh. opened up the opportunity for people to use sugar, which became really common in, in English beers, as we've talked about, or British yep. beers, as we talked about. Yeah. But it also allowed the Guinness Company to discover that uh, if they used a unmalted barley oh. uh, that they roasted, it gave a different characteristic. That kind of the quality that you find in the bitterness, the roasty bitterness that you get in Guinness, is unmalted barley, which they started using sometime after 1880. That's not totally clear. So they put that in the mash. They put it in the mash, yeah. I did not know this. And there you go. After all this time, you, you held out on me, waiting for this moment to drop it. That's that's fascinating. So, so it's, it's in the beer Bible, and I've now just proven that you're a poor <laughs> student and have not read that chapter. Um, the beer Bible is on my bedside table. Uh, yeah. I, I'm sure you're getting there. Well, that's the point is that I'm an old man. And so <laughs> what happens is I pick up a book, and and it puts me to sleep immediately. Not not because of the book, of course. The book, the book is... in enlivening and, and would normally keep me awake but you just can't i've been putting people to sleep for two years i'm all for <laughs> okay. it I, I've, I've dug myself a hole i can't get out I've, I've also been told my the beer bible is wonderful toilet reading so no, but what? Back, <laughs> back in many toilets uh, across america so. well that is high praise actually. yeah i know I, uh, i'm proud of it so so wait a minute so what happens to this unmalted barley in the mash anything uh, no, it's mainly it's just for flavor. So there's, there's no they don't extract any sugar from it. No, okay. I, I don't think so. So it's just a flavor. Oops. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it's just for flavor, and it gives a really characteristic flavor, ah. uh, which you find is the if that's that's what gives Irish stouts their real Irishness. Is okay. the, the, the flavor of, of roasted unmalted barley. And how would you describe that flavor? Uh, I would say it's um, uh, more more like burned acrid, less. Uh, um, chocolatey, right. like you know, the more more in the char okay. quality. Um, so that's an interesting thing. The other last, just fascinating thing is, and I when I was when I visited Guinness, um, they, it was really funny. At kind of halfway through my tour, they said or my visit, they said, "Hey." Are you interested in seeing the, the the roastings that we do here? And I'm like, yeah, I'm incredibly interested. And they had they were they're they're so un uh, unfamiliar with the visitors that they didn't know how to do it, and they didn't have a tour plan, and we, I never got to see it. But um, oh. there at 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 St James Gate, they um, roast, and this is I got I got this little 
tidbit before the pod. This is a, an amazing stat. 20,000 tons of barley is roasted at St. James Gate. Unmalted barley roasted yeah. there. Wow. A pretty staggering amount of barley to be roasted. What, do you have any idea what sort of percentage of the grist is? No. Okay. They've been very close to yeah, the Yeah, of course. I was going to say this is Guinness. They would never tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, that's, that's, that's really interesting. It makes me really actually want to. Though Guinness. the truth is, we could actually probably, drive. like a, a math person out there, I throw it to you, the audience. Uh, we now know that it's 20,000 tons. I think they brew around 5.5 million barrels of beer. Okay. Uh, most of that's going to be, ah, it's not going to be possible. We don't have all the day. We don't, we don't have enough. I was going to say, I'm, I'm just going to see how you're going <laughs> to back, back up. Back uh, this if we knew how much uh, was draft Guinness, we could figure it out, but I don't know. Yeah. All right. Okay, now I really want a Guinness. <laughs> I really want a beer. Should we just we have a beer here and no real way to talk about it. Should we just crack this? We have a, a, Fort, a Fort George three-way. Sure, tell IPA. tell us tell you were excited about this cuz today is the release date. Yeah. Um, well, although although I feel like I Oh no, I got a I got an email about it. That's how I feel like I know the label. So yeah, what is this? Well, crack it while I talk about okay. it. It's uh, every year Fort George. Speaking of Astoria, by the way, we talk yeah. about Bowie. Fort George is also an Astoria. They partner with two other breweries. They sit down and decide to make some kind of IPA. This is made with Rubens and uh, out of Seattle. And um, oh, I thought, I thought that was the hop. No, <laughs> they, like, they do that's have, a new one. Yeah, they do have some weird hop in there. All right, and, already uh, this is kind of New Englandy. Yeah, and and great notion, and it's very New Englandy. So it's kind of a, a beer of beer of today, beer great, of now. Great notion being a uh, Portland brewery. A Portland brewery that specializes in the uh, New England IPA. So oh, is that right? Yeah, it's, oh. I think it says it on here somewhere. What they got here? Mm. Well, it does have that milky, creamy, New Englandy, uh, juicy kind of. We got uh, a Zaka hops. It's got others though too. I don't know what else it's got in there. But oh my goodness! Wow. This is in, that is really 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 good in the Pacific Northwest. This is a pretty oh, uh, anticipated beer every year. That is um, that's a mouthful of juice. All right, that's like New England all all over. Ooh, it's got a touch of sweat in it though. No, I had no sweat. Oh, it totally <laughs> has sweat. <laughs> you detect mosaic already. Mmm. Uh. No, it's pretty nice. It's got a little bit of bitterness. Could have a touch more bitterness for my taste. Yeah, but. yeah, it's not. Um, it, I, I agree. It could have a little bit more of a lasting bitter. Mm. But I like. But daddy, daddy likes. Uh, <laughs> by the way, sadly for most of our listeners, it proudly says on the can, distributed only in the Pacific Northwest. So you're gonna have to come. Yep, you're gonna have to come. This is these are these are fun and interesting beers that are released every summer, and they're all mm. some some of them are better than others, or more more prize than others all right this is mine i don't know about you yeah we'll see we'll see we'll see what the people think of this it looks like a pretty good debut though i bet this one's gonna be a big hit yeah i think so it's perfectly timed all right so let's um let's segue to our main topic yeah um i'll give a little bit of an intro here but then we'll go to the we'll actually get to seth because he's the the main show um the Seth Klan, the, the guy I'm going to interview, is a seventh-generation farmer in Madras, which mm-hmm. is a town about 45 minutes, 45 miles uh, north of Bend in, in, in Oregon. And if you look at Oregon, it's kind of rectangular. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bend is like right smack dab in the middle. So for, mm-hmm. if you go 45 miles north, you find Madras, mm-hmm. um, which is in the high desert. And the family there has been brewing, uh, been farming for uh, for seven generations. So... He'll he'll talk a little bit about his background. I, I just want to mention um, 
he is active in the Craft Maltsters Guild, uh, which includes 28 members in the United States, five in Canada. Uh, they stretch. There's members from Maine to Texas. Uh, seems like there's more in the in the Northeast and the Midwest and out on the West Coast, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense. But one of the charter members is uh, Riverbend uh, Malt, which is in uh, North Carolina, and they do some. They've they've been kind of a, a big founder and they uh make malt out of really cool things like uh, thoroughbred barley which is a local thing they do there mm-hmm. oaks wheat also local wren's abruzzi rye which is a 200 year old north carolina rye they use mainly for whiskey uh-huh. so that's kind of cool so they malt all this stuff um there are other cool uh micro maltings happening elsewhere there's buck farms in maine they do a malt of barley called Newdale barley. So mm-hmm. these are all, this is one of the cool things you can do if you're a craft maltster is you can like work with local uh, universities and find heirloom barleys and then malt those. And that's what they're doing. Right. Um, I, you'll like this one. Uh, Pilot malt house in Michigan discovered an old, an old barley that was pretty popular in the early part of the 20th century and worked with uh, Michigan State, and it was called Spartan Barley, which uh. I thought <laughs> Big Ten fans will appreciate that. Uh, and um, your alma mater, Cornell, is working, which which is a very famous ag school. Mm-hmm. You're not in the ag school, but no. um, they're working with New York Craft Malt to try 23 different varieties of barley, wheat, and oats to see which ones of those are going to be... Uh, uh, produce good quality for the right. region, uh, for the New York region. So that's what these little guys are doing. Um, the, the the Craft Maltsters Guild is a guild that is a lot like the Brewers Association. They structure it like the Brewers Association. So members have to be small, they have to be local, and they have to be independent. You can look them up online if you want to see what those criteria are. But basically, um, they're trying to create this market for these kind of artisanal malts that Uh, will be used regionally by local brewers. And when we hear Seth here in a moment talk about this, he'll talk about how uh, he uses a local barley and he is selling beer or selling his malt to local breweries, which I unfortunately I could not track one one of those down. (laughs) So we will, in a future pod, I'm sure we will find a a beer that is made with Mecca grade estate malt and we will taste that for you. Cool. uh, We're not going to do that today because I couldn't pull it off. By the way, I can't resist uh, interjecting a little beeronomics note here. Uh, <clears throat> I talk about economies of scale in brewing a lot um, in terms of uh, the uh, brew house size and the tank size and distribution channels and things like that. But when we talk about economies of scale in, in economics in general, we talk about both internal economies of scale, which is the things I'm talking about, the economies you see as an individual firm as you get bigger. Uh, but there's also something called external economies of scale. And this isn't quite like that, but basically the idea is that as the industry grows bigger, as there are more and more craft brewers out there, then they um, uh, become more input producers. And those input producers both can get bigger and have their own economies of scale, or it's more competitive. In this case, it would just be more variety is available to you. So it's the things that happen as the industry gets bigger, all these things sort of uh, start to grow, more acreage, um, devoted to crafty hops, let's call them, and and now more uh, more uh, artisanal barley. That's pretty cool. It is cool, and it, it, this is one of those things that the United States has been incredibly bad about. We we don't treat malt very 
you know, we it's just no. like sugar. It's yeah. just not it's not a thing we care about. It's just for fermentables. You use specialty malts if you want to add flavor, but the flavor of the barley itself as contributing something characteristic and the malting the the, the malting technique. Yeah, this is as you know really important in places like. Uh, the UK and the Czech Republic and, and Germany, but we just are not, we, we've been really lacking on this. So Yeah, I mean, that's actually like, when you talk to craft brewers in the United States, they'll talk about hops. They'll talk sometimes about water. Yeah, yeast. Uh, and they'll talk about yeast a lot, yeah. but almost never about malt. Yeah. And then you go to England and you talk to craft uh, or legacy brewers there, and the first thing they'll start talking about is malt. Absolutely. Like where the malt comes from and, and who produces it and where they get it from and what kind of year it was. <laughs> like, yeah, the barley variety. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah, and, and you know, it will really affect beer because, for example, lagers right now are getting a pretty big deal. And when people make European lagers, they have very few choices. So, so often when I ask a brewer who's made a Pilsner or a Helles, what did you use? They always say Weirman Pilsner because that's one of the most uh, easy to get. Uh, classic European malts, mm-hmm. but it means that all of our all of our Hellases and Pilsners have, are, which are really characterized by malt, have yeah. a really very similar flavor. Uh-huh. So if you have Mecca Great Estate Pale Malt and you make a Pilsner out of it, it's going to taste a lot different than if you have your Fireman, and that can be a real attractive thing for brewers who are trying to bring some different character to a thing that's characterized by absolutely malt, like yeah. Hellas. Get on it. All right, should we uh, turn to the interview? Let's do it. All right, here is uh, Seth. Let's say clan. Clan. Okay. If it's clan, we, I'm sorry, Seth. <laughs> okay. Uh, here is Seth Clan from Mecca Grade uh, Estate Malt. Oh, yeah. And I, one, one last thing I should add here is uh, this was a long interview, and I had to edit it down uh, for, for kind of both clarity and uh, length. So um, it's a little bit disjointed. There's, there's pauses in between segments. So that's, that's what's going on there. All right. Here's Seth. Well, um, I started homebrewing about um, five years ago, and one thing I always used in a lot of my, my beers, I was always using a little bit of um, uh, malted um, red, what I was thinking was hard red spring wheat, and I would get it from Wireman. I'd use like 5% just for head retention, and I like the grainy flavor of it, and that's something we grow. So we grow hard red spring wheat. Um, we grow it actually to be high protein, so we're most of it goes to Japan for noodle making of all things too. <laughs> and so I'm like, if we can figure out how to malt, um, you know, hard red spring wheat. And I started, I actually started home malting in my garage. Um, and there, at the time there just wasn't hardly any good information about it at all. And since then there's, you know, there's, there's resources and stuff, a few more here popping up here and there. But, um, you know, once you kind of, especially I, I started, you know, home brewing at the same time I started home malting, and once you get bitten by that bug, I got double bit. So not only am I brewing, but I'm trying to brew with stuff that I'm trying, you know, I'm malting. Um, and we knew the area, like we know the area historically is fantastic for growing specialty grain and seed. So the actual, the growing of the barley and, and doing that for the first time in a hundred years, as far as malting barley goes, that wasn't necessarily the challenge. Um, the challenge has been, trying to malt on a small scale and come up with these, you know, these processes. Again, a lot of these processes are, are, are pretty, um, are only now being kind of talked about. Um, it's, it's malting barley has been so commoditized over the years that a lot of this information is just isn't out there. So how, how big is your malt house and, and how did you figure this stuff out? 
Um, so right now, uh, we are our big mechanical floor malter. We're doing about 12 tons of finished malt a week, so about 24,000 pounds. Um, we built the malt house to have three or four of those machines in there. Um, and to put it into context, it takes about, for us, takes about 150 acres to feed uh, of barley to feed that one machine per year. A little bit, and like I said, it's hard getting the farming out of your system. We get pretty spoiled over here. So I, I came back home to farm, but one of the things I always knew is if we're ever going to start something, that there's no reason growing the same varieties and malting the same way as everyone else. So we try to really hard to make sure every single step of the process from the field to the finished product is distinct in some way. And that makes it so, I mean, as long as we can reproduce it in-house, um, you know, if someone were to go park a big malt house across the field from us, they couldn't reproduce what we were doing. Um, at the end of the day, it has to, the other, other, other consideration is it has to taste good too. Um, so there's, my thought is there's, you know, there's plenty of good malt out there. Um, I'm a big Weirman fan. I like a lot of malts from Europe. So, you know, we didn't want to copy those guys because you can already get that malt. Um, so it's it's been a little bit of a challenge, but we've, we, it's, we've been do, working at this, like I said, for about four years now. Um, but we try to make very distinct malts that um, are their own thing. Uh, so there's, the, there's two elements, I think, that go into that. There's the mm -hmm. barley, and then there's the way you malt it. So, what mm -hmm. what kind of barley are you using, and then how do you malt it to get a character that you want? We're growing um, a variety called Full Pint, and it's an Oregon State variety. Uh, that's where I went to school. Um, we work pretty closely with Oregon State. They're one of the few barley breeding programs in the entire world, and we work pretty close with like Dr. Pat Hayes and them there. Um, so they bred that. Uh, gosh, I'm almost thinking. Don't quote me on this. I think it was almost eight years ago. Okay. And it, Full Pint is a cross between a, an old Coors variety, so a Moravian variety, mm -hmm. um, and uh, out of Czechoslovakia. And it's to get, they were trying to get stripe rust resistance into it. So they crossed it with an Ecuadorian variety. Hmm. So <laughs> it's Ecuador crossed by Czechoslovakia, and it makes for this kind of a runty, just oddball barley um, that's resistant to rusts, which is good, um, but it also has some really novel flavors in there because it kind of exists, you know, as far as uh, pedigree, completely outside of, uh, you know, North American malt. Um, and so we, we took a chance on it. I started with a 100-pound, I got two 50-pound bags, which is enough to plant an acre, and we grew it up from then. So we're the source of our own seed stock and everything. Um, full pint, it's a really tough variety to grow outside of the desert. Hmm. And a lot of this, a lot of this stuff, we just, we kind of rolled the dice on it because it's like, well, we knew full pint was short. It would work great underneath irrigation. We knew some agronomic things about it. And I had an idea that, you know, they were kind of doing some, uh, some home malting with it at the time. And there was a little bit of a buzz around it. Turns out it tastes completely different too, which is good for us. Um, but where's I going with that? Um, yeah, so we know we know that varieties have a flavor impact, um, and that and that's one thing that's never really it's danced around about as far as North American malting varieties because really I had some numbers I I 
looked up. In Canada, like last year, 85% of the malting barley came from two varieties. Mm-hmm. It was Copeland and AC Metcalf, which have been bred. They're, they're, they're cousins, so they taste pretty much identical. They've been bred, you know, um, and, and, and influenced to meet kind of the specifications of these big malt houses and for big breweries. So they malt really easily. Agronomically, they yield really well. Um, but, you know, over time, we've essentially bred all of the flavor out of malting barley by focusing just on yield and sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have the malting equivalent of white flour at this point. Right. And <laughs> and that's what the thing is, that's what everyone uses. It's not just it's not just the big guys. Um, it's, it's what every, you know, what a lot of craft, craft brewers are using too. And you can make good beer like that. Um, and, and, and everything, but there's this whole other, there's this whole other level of flavor that's out, that's out there that we're just starting to kind of get to now. And, um, there is now 38, um, what we consider regular malt houses or, or member malt houses across North America. So, um, and that comes down to, it's kind of like, uh, we've, we have people that are in the BA that serve on the board as well. So we've kind of modeled it a little bit after that. So we limit production uh, annual capacity to like 10,000 tons. Um, for example, like with this one machine, we're only able to do about 500 tons per year. Mm-hmm. So it, it would be a malt house that's 20 times bigger than ours. Gotcha. That, and once they fall out of that, but there's already some that are starting that are saying they're craft malt that are way bigger than that right out of the gate. Huh. So they wouldn't, they couldn't be part of the craft monsters guild. The other, the other part of that would be um, regional sourcing of ingredients. So like we're unique in that we source everything from our farm. A lot of like most malt houses don't do that, but they're at least trying to source within you know, 100-mile, 200-mile um, radius. A lot of them are all the way up to 500 miles because they're starting in some of these places that, you know, uh, barley is a real challenge to grow in. We're fortunate it does well here, but a lot of this this craft malt movement started on the East Coast, and that's just a, for hops and for, for, for malting barley. It's just a real challenging area to be doing this stuff in. Um, a lot of the spring two-row research kind of went by the wayside and that's what does really well here um and so we ended up putting together a proposal with oregon state and we bought all of oregon state's spring two row varieties out of their greenhouse and we uh, we started with 130 selections and we grew them here and the idea is we're we whittled them down now on the second year to uh, uh 30 selections and then we'll keep on going there. But at some point, we're going to get them micro-malted and, and do sensory on them and start making um, beer out of them. And what we're trying to do is breed for flavor. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily like agronomics or, you know, and yield, um, disease resistant, that's, that's a plus. But as far as we know, we're the only ones that are actually actively breeding for flavor and novel flavors. So... Um, and one of the things we're completely open to, like all of these, all these selections are crosses with full pint. So full pint crossed with Maris Otter, full pint crossed with Golden Promise, full pint crossed with, you know, stuff from around the world. We're completely open to the fact, like, what happens if we get to the end of this project 
and we end up with full pint. <laughs> For us, it was like the best one all along. Well, winter winter barley is you know sown in the fall, and it has it has to go through like a winter. Um, I'm trying to think of the term for it. It it has winter resistance, so it's resistance to cold, and it actually needs the freezing to and the, its vernalization to to send out new um, to send out new like uh, shoots or whatnot. Spring varieties typically don't have any winter freezing resistance um, at all, and they're planted like we'll plant in the spring. So for us, um, for our rotation, it works really well because we'll go um, with the spring barley and then we'll harvest it in August. We'll turn right around and plant a field of bluegrass and it comes up and it looks like your lawn. And if there's any volunteer, so if there's any uh, um, spring barley seed that comes up in it, we don't have to spray it. Um, the winter, that, that winter will let it grow. The winter will kill it out. Mm-hmm. So that's why we say it makes a good rotational crop. Um, yeah. And so as far as flavor-wise, there's I don't there's not really any difference there. Cool. So let's bring it back yeah. to beer. Uh, you've got uh-huh. full, full, you you said that full pint has some interesting flavor characteristics. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you when you, I've never brewed with it. Um, what you brewed with it? What what do you what kind of character do you get out of it? So when full pint's grown here and it's malted in our in our process, we get like this kind of underlying. It's not peanut. It's some kind of a um, nuttiness, like a sweet graham cracker nuttiness. Hmm. And when we make a pilsner style out of it, it's kind of this background layer. It's really rich. So it starts with a, like a grassy kind of nuttiness, and once we killed it past the pilsner style, that that grassiness goes away. But the higher and higher you kiln the malt, it goes from kind of like a graham cracker nuttiness up to our, our Munich style, which is almost almost like a toasted walnut itself. Hmm. So maybe it's like a light walnut, um, kind of an underlying thing. But we do know that, um, that uh, you know, full pint grown, that's one of the things that we worked with Oregon State with, um, full pint grown here on our farm. And, and then there was, oh, sorry, there was an experiment where they, they grew it here. Um, they grew it up in Eastern Oregon. They grew it at a couple different locations in the, in the valley. Um, they had everything set back to RAR. They micro-malted it there um, the same way, same batch, made beers out of all of them. So all of them tasted different. Hmm. So we know that um, where it's grown has an impact on flavor, yeah. how it's malted has an impact on flavor. And there are certain varieties that, like, when you have a Copeland or, or, a, or a Metcalf, those, they call it, um, what, is it, what is the term for that? Is it epi? epigenetics or I'm, I'm having a blank on it certain of some of these older varieties are more expressive genetically of their environment than the newer varieties uh, and that work that works to a big malt house's favor it makes sense like if you're sourcing from all over the place in canada down through montana you want to limit your varieties but within that you want to limit genetic expression because you want everything coming in on a rail car to be the same product. Right. You're trying to make you the same malt. beer. Exactly. Exactly. So what I think um, small maltsters have a real opportunity in doing is we can work with some of these older, more varieties that are more of a pain in the ass to malt, you know, honestly, but have these really super expressive flavors. And we're not as concerned about, like, especially us, like we're not as concerned about the yield. It, as long as it's not diseased out in the field, if it has some kind of novel flavor, 
if we have to vault it longer, if we have to put more resources at it, and it's mostly if it's something that we can do that no one else can do, we're going to do it. So let's talk about the malting part of it. Um, I have only ever been to a couple malt houses, uh, mm-hmm. and I've never really seen a big commercial malt house. Um, h- how does malting affect everything? Um, so when I was when I was you know home malting in my garage and trying to emulate you know the floor malting process, that's kind of like the pinnacle of you know artisanal malting is having it done by hand shallow beds but there's a practical side of it too like if you were there i mean you saw that those floors um or the grain beds weren't very deep mm-hmm. at all and they were um i don't know if they're doing it by hand or by some kind of a machine but they're moved and completely flipped over maybe every six hours or so at least every 12 they said with within 12 um, yeah and uh, it varies depending on temperature and, and moisture and stuff so if you were to go to a if you were to go to one of these big malt houses, um, kind of everywhere else in the world, they're slamming through so much malt. Their grain beds are at least eight feet deep in some places, wow, or really? deeper. Yeah. Uh, in those deep beds versus shallow beds, what mm-hmm. what's the difference in the kernel of, of barley? What's happening? What, why is one better than the other? Well, wh- the one thing is like if you're getting stratification in that bed too. So you're going to end up with things, especially as it's hotter down below, or it would actually be if they're, depends on where they're blowing the airflow through. Um, you're going to end up with um, malt that's further along on one layer as opposed to the top. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about blend of a blend of a blend, um, you, you end up with kind of almost like a salt and pepper, even, at the, even though they're saying that all that batch is the same malt. And so what we're trying in our process to do is to keep things as shallow as possible because what we really want is we want every single one of those kernels to be the same product. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that um, and you have a uniformity of product within kernels, you end up with this extreme depth of flavor that I think, um, well, I shouldn't say I think, we know that is part of our product and the only way to do it is to have those shallow grade beds. Um, one way, you know, when, when we were when we were looking at this, we ended up designing all of our own equipment. And so when we say floor malt, I think a lot of people, when we have that in the bags and everything, a lot of people assume we're doing this on a big cement floor in our garage, or not our garage, in our barn or something. We're doing everything by hand, but we actually came up with our own unimalter design. So we do all the steps of malting in one giant machine. We had the machine custom built. Um, there's a company in, in the valley that we worked with. Um, we load the figgits, we, uh, we steep it, we germinate it, we kill it all in one vessel. But the thing's about 80 feet long and 20 feet wide. And the only reason it's so giant is because we're trying to keep our grain beds down to 12 inches max huh. when, it's, when it's fully fluffed up. And, and and that was a concept we had. We, we started with them. We started malting with a 700-pound prototype machine, and we started getting, like, it was just all, a lot of this stuff was just concepts. It's just, uh, it was me playing around with stuff, us looking at what was already out there, um, theorizing, you know, how flavor was developed, and just going for it. And so that's a huge um, 
that we found has a huge impact. And so when we turn a bed, um, we kind of have like this, uh, you'd have to kind of see it to, to understand, but um, we're actually turning um, equivalent of about our whole bed over um, once every six hours. Uh, so my podcast partner, Patrick, would be uh, interested in the, the economics of this. Um, mm -hmm. I was talking to a brewer here in Portland who's used your malt, and he likes it, but um, it is substantially more expensive. He says he gets, uh, I think, um, the malt that he uses, he was doing it in a, in a, in a beer. Uh, the malt he gets is like 70 cents a pound, and yours is a buck and a quarter or something like mm -hmm. that. They may not be, those may not be exact numbers. Yeah, um, one, our, our malt price has been going down. Um, in fact, it might go up over time. Yeah. Um, um, two, uh, we sell most of our malt, actually, to Southern California. And that's where a lot of it's going right now is to Los Angeles and San Diego. Is um, this to, it's, to craft brewers? or? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and a lot of it has to do, we didn't really realize this when we, when we were, were starting this up. I also, you know, didn't have any... I didn't have any illusions that just because we were local, um, everyone was going to buy our stuff just because we're an Oregon malt house or anything like that. I mean, the Pacific Northwest, I, I think North America in general is pretty spoiled with extremely cheap malt. I mean, you're talking like 30, if you're getting it from a truckload from, uh, from Great Western, you're getting it for 35 cents. Um, Deschutes is getting theirs for 30. Um, so even at, even, you know, even if we were at, 75 or something like that one we'd be making no money um and everyone wants uh, a lower and lower I mean, everyone wants it cheaper sure. and so that's one game we don't even want to play so the only way for us to do it and that we thought this from the very beginning is to offer something that was so unique um our malt's more of a luxury malt and it's not going to be for everyone it's not going to be for every beer um, we don't have any ambitions of becoming the next Breeze or the next Great Western or anything like that. Um, and so that's why for us, being in a state malt house and limiting everything to um, our own farm, and now, you know, especially if we have our own varieties, if, if those pan out, um, for some of the stuff, we're going to be it. And once the malt's gone, it's gone kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's a completely different way. We're, we aren't selling a commodity at that point. We're selling a luxury malt, which is something that, I don't think exists. There's a couple malt houses that are doing it. I think Valley Malt back in Massachusetts is similar to that. Um, there's no way for us to compete against the big guys at all, and we don't want to either. Um, but, you know, malt, like if, say, uh, th there's a brewer out in, you know, Yahats. I don't know if you're familiar with them, like Charlie, yeah. out in the coast. Yeah. I worked on a project with them. They just decided to raise their pint prices to – six dollars to seven dollars a pint because they were getting so popular they're such a tourist trap and everything there um and once you raise like our malt at the end of the day it adds 15 cents to a pint of a, to a pint price 15 cents is it and, <laughs> yeah. and so if you can if, if it's if it's a novel enough flavor um you know and you can you can charge you know more than 15 cents for that you've your money ahead um, and so some of these places that, you know, down in California where they're already at $7 a pint, it's a no-brainer for them. I think in Oregon you're going to start seeing the dominoes fall. I mean, we're so – I think culturally we like that 450 to $5 a pint. We don't want to budge from that. 
but to be able to afford and to support people like us doing what we do and buying better ingredients, it's going to happen. Well, as an economist, of course, that's fascinating. One of the first things that pops in my mind is, are craft brewers these days competing on, are, are, uh, are we to the point where they're, they're really competing on price or are they competing on new flavors? And I think for a lot of craft brewers, the, it's, the latter is true. Obviously, when you're in the supermarket, price matters a lot. But yeah. if you're talking about, you know, in your brewery or in your tap room or, uh, you know, um, on a, a, at a bar and different taps, I don't think 15 cents is going gonna, is gonna to make a big difference. But I do think that a, a new flavor is going to make a big difference. Yeah, and the price. So, lot to unpack there. One thing that springs to mind is pricing is one of those weird things. So, if you're making a Kolsch, let's mm-hmm. say, um, at a brewery, and you know you're making it four point eight percent, you can afford to pay since you're paying very little for the hops, and the even the malt is going to be probably as cheap as if you made an IPA. Yeah. Um, it's still going to be a relatively inexpensive beer. So yeah. when you talk about ingredient prices, you do have to kind of weigh them all together. They're all different. They have different costs. Yeah, this can lead us, by the way, into an entirely different discussion because I'm always fascinated by the fact that you go to England and you'll have price depending on the beer you're buying, the alcohol content of the beer you're buying. Yeah. Here, we're not, we don't do that at all. It's always like, my, you, know, you get my pint for six bucks. It doesn't well, matter whether it's an English mild or it's like a triple IPA. <laughs> And I wonder, this is an interesting thing, though. and, it, and, and That shouldn't be. Yeah, I agree, it shouldn't <laughs> be. But if, you, if they can like co-brand uh, mecha-grade malt, mm-hmm. if it becomes a valuable commodity, like if people recognize it as superior quality, and then yeah. you advertise your beer, you know, you're going to go to a brew pub and it says, um, here's our latest whatever beer, and made with mecha-grade malt, and it's 50 cents more a pint, Yeah, um, it seems like it would totally pencil out. Uh, in terms of value, if the customer recognizes if the customer, it. Yeah, if the yeah. customer places value on it. Well, that's why I'm all in favor of more information. So I love a brew pub that says, these are the hops, these, this is the yeast, this is the malt. Tells a little story about each. Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. And I, it, it's going to be a... I'm, I'm really fascinated by this element because malt is subtle. And mm-hmm. whether people are going to be able to recognize well, the, the flavor of the malt and and then will be willing to pay for it i'm, I'm interested to see that develop yeah and it certainly would in countries where malt is more you know full, more fully understood than it is here in the United well States. exactly what i was going to say is that malt is subtle and we don't go for malt forward beers right now in the u.s craft beer market right um it could be that we start you know with these artisanal malts we start sort of featuring english style malt forward mild beers that you know have uh light hopping and really uh are um propped up on sort of the malt characteristic of the beer that would be interesting that in fact maybe that's going to happen maybe that maybe we'll finally see this english beer revolution that happens because of this artisanal malt you really want to feature the artisanal malt that's right and it will i mean it, it would drive it it's interesting when we 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 had that uh, exchange where he mentioned that it was uh, he's selling a lot of his malt to Southern California. Yeah, and I asked him about that. I I don't think it was on that um, that recording, but they're making IPAs out of it, which really blows my mind. And, and apparently, 
in California, they're feeling like it's contributing quite a bit. Huh. So, and he, he talked about that a little bit. It was, again, one of those things that I uh, didn't. Yeah, that would not be my first instinct instinct if I was a brewer to think, okay, I'm going to buy this expensive artisanal malt and I'm going to make an IPA out of it. I know. I know. It's really unusual, but uh, I I could imagine that, you know, brewers try a couple of batches and they see that it contributes something. All right. So so what do you think it is? This is this fascinates me. Like why why California brewers and not Oregon brewers are going whole hog into the artisanal malt? Is it just because they have a bigger margin doesn't make any sense to me what why they may have a bigger margin uh we definitely have cheap beer in oregon and because we're so competitive maybe i think that's part of it and uh yeah we're so cheap (laughs) no i think it's got to be competitive because obviously everybody's interest is driving prices up you're the economist what do you think why is (laughs) well that's why i'm asking i don't know (laughs) like so we have lower pint prices in oregon than in california this is a whole this is a whole pot now i'm totally fascinated i never thought about i never thought about talking about this before we should have a we should have a pod about this you you uh, listeners you got to tell me what your average pint price is yeah that would be a you got to let us know a good thing i want to i want to i want to think about regional differences in pint prices there, there because part of it of course would be competition part of it would be just be production costs like in in california of course labor costs would probably be higher i would imagine especially if you're in san diego or los angeles san francisco those areas not if so much if you're in chico i suppose but um right so i get that but uh, is the competitive landscape? I mean, we're awfully we're, we're hyper competitive here as well. So, in, in other words, I don't know whether it's the margins are bigger in California or it's just the costs are higher in California. What are you talking? You're the economist. Well, you, you're giving me a blank somebody, stare. Somebody <laughs> tell me. <laughs> I have no idea. Well, this is the part. This is the Normally, part. I would jump in and offer my uninformed opinion, but now I'm looking across at an economist. I feel slightly. All right, I feel a research agenda coming on. The problem is nobody cares about this. Like this is not going to get published in the American Economic Review, but it's important. It is important. It's important. It, so it's somebody's like got to do it. Vitally important. Yeah. Portland, uh, particularly, I think Oregon is definitely follows this, but but Portland is a cheap town, and when people come to town uh, and and like go to our restaurants, they're usually shocked at how cheap our food is. Now hold on, that's totally true. Now, now people who come from Kansas City don't come to Portland and say, "Oh, it's really cheap." People who come from San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, they come to Portland, they say, "Oh, it's cheap." Or Boston, in yeah. your case, I'm asking probably what you're talking about. You just you just pulled Kansas City out of your hat. Like no, 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 no. The Midwest. You okay, yeah, you don't know anything about Kansas. Columbus, City. Kansas City, St. Louis. Uh, I bet we're cheaper than Colum- uh, Louisville. So, I mean, the point is, the middle of the country is usually a lot cheaper than coastal America. So, yeah, your, I think your perspective's all. No, I think you're wrong about that, and I, I, I I'm I, not I, wrong. I, so Kansas City, which was just clearly uh, blatant prejudice for flyover state, you just like <laughs> no. trying to pull something out of your ass. Not there. at all. I bet anything that we're cheaper than uh, Columbus. I'll bet you right now. Uh, okay, done. What? what uh, what's how do we stake? find that out? I don't know how we find that out. Is there a way to? You're an economist. Can you yeah, find I'll, out like I'll, how restaurants I'll, are I'll, cheaper? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes, I'll tell you the answer. All right. And then you'll give me a case of beer. I will not give you a case. I will give you. Um, uh, the beer of choice from my beer larder. Yeah. And just, what will you give me when you are wrong? I'm not wrong. <laughs> so Deal off, done. Unless you put done. something on the on the table. Of course I'm not wrong since you've given me complete authority to tell you the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I walked into that uh, one. We can do consumer price index. All right. We can do regional consumer price index. Okay, so that will be taste. And then uh, what do I give you? Um, I can give you like uh, an economics textbook. How about that? Yeah, that's not really going to cut it. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll figure that out later. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah. Anything else to talk about in terms uh, of craft mall? I Artis- think artisanal uh, malls. Yeah, I just think um, I'm I'm in, I'm going to be really interested to see what happens as this develops. I would love to try this thoroughbred barley from North Carolina, and I would like to try some some Newdale from Maine. And- well, I'm with you. I would really like to try it in a malt for. Like I'm not I'm not. I'm not Oh, I guess I suppose it's interesting to try it in an IPA, but I'd love to try it like a Pilsner made with local you and, artisanal malt. You and I are going to have to go to Madras or convince Seth to give us some malt so we can make a homebrew. And then we'll, Ooh, we'll, yeah, Seth. Yeah. Seth, we'll, we'll be your... I'm thinking of Kolsch. I think a Kolsch would be a great a great beer for the summer. Yeah, since we, can, we, can, since we, we can't lager in the summer. <laughs> we have like a two-month window of lager. Yeah. By the way, our lager is... Uh, never mind. It's it's conditioned really nicely, and I like it. Excellent. Okay. Uh, mailbag and Sherpa. Oh, we already tasted, so that's done. Three-way IPA. Uh, yeah, and I just really quickly, mm-hmm. the, this X331, which is a specialty hop in there, mm-hmm. um, is a thing that was grown originally on Gail Goshi's farm, which is so cool, because uh, oh. Gail Goshi's kind of like a friend of the pod. That's well, right. I don't know if she's a friend of the pod. She's a friend of the pod. She probably wouldn't like me at all. <laughs> she's, uh, she's an incredibly cool hop farmer, one of these uh, uh, you know uh, multi-generational families, and um, uh, it was open... F- it was a. It had a, a German parentage and was open uh, pollinated from the other one, so we'll never know. But cool. it's um, German and something. And I think that's probably what that sweaty thing is. Yeah, there's no sweat. That's a sweaty thing. Right, talking about. Okay, uh, so go ahead, mailbag. Okay, mailbag. We just have a couple of quickies here. Um, the first one is. Uh, comes in from. Oh, right, yes, they corrected us, yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. It's always good to correct the record. Exactly. It's just going to show that we are, you know, we're, we're, we're committed to the truth here. Uh, Kevin Mazza, Mazza uh, McAvoy sent mm-hmm. in a pod on, or a, a thing I'm just going to read verbatim. Just started listening to the newest pod about IPAs and heard you guys chat about Cinco de Mayo. So this was, of course, when we potted on actually Cinco de Mayo. That's right. It's actually a real Mexican holiday, mm-hmm. albeit only celebrated in the state of Puebla, southeast of Mexico City, mm-hmm. where the Battle of Puebla took place on May 5th, 1862. My wife is actually from Puebla, and it is mostly a Memorial Day-style holiday, a day off uh, with a parade and food, not mega beer and te- tequila freakout. <laughs> Um, which I believe he's been indicating our celebration of it. Um, I heard some competing theories as to why it's become a thing here, and I don't think uh, anything has been proven, but I have heard that the uh, beer marketing tool is a possible reason, which I completely buy. Yeah, well, that was, I mean, I had it in the back of my head. I mentioned it, that I thought I read somewhere that it was like, you know, Modelo figured out we're going to sell a lot of beer if we push this. Um, I've been to Puebla. Puebla Puebla is a lovely town. Um, it's a lot more lovely than Mexico City, where I'm headed next month. Nice. Uh, Puebla is a really um, nice size. It's just over the mountain range, so you get out of the Mexico City basin, you get into Puebla. Puebla's a nice sized town. It's a beautiful town. I give. I've heard about this. Yeah. Um, I'll have to check it out. I may go to Mexico City this year. If you go to Mexico City, you should you should take a little sojourn to Puebla. I'll do it. Okay, so Pete Hanlon uh, has sent a, a suggestion in. Topic suggestion. Now that you have covered some of the chemistry of hops, I would be interested to know about the economics of hop growing. Uh, see, Jeff, like what they really want is the economics. I told you that. <laughs> we Jeff, debate this all the time. Jeff's recent post about uh, the huge growth in acres had me thinking about how hop farmers approach things. What is their time horizon for decision making? How do they decide what to plant? And do hop plantings lead or lag the market? And one of the things I'll say is interesting is that uh, hops are sold on a futures market, which is 
fascinating. That's totally. a whole that's a whole other economic. So that's a good a very it, good suggestion. It's a great suggestion, and it gets into a, a, an interesting piece of the agricultural pie because. Um, hops are kind of commodities, but they're also kind of not commodities since mm-hmm. um, a cascade is not the same as a holler tower. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. And they have to make these decisions, and there's a long lead time, and yeah. so it's a great question. Yeah, so just really quickly, we won't talk about this now, but um, uh, how long between the planting of a new hop vine before it produces uh, Like a an established variety or a new variety? Established variety. Two years to okay. get to yep. get going, and and maybe even a little bit longer. Yeah. Uh, so that's but the first year is kind of a wash. It's a big lead in. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that'll do it for tonight. Thanks. No, it won't, because I'm going to do a beer sherpa. Oh, you are. Oh, I yeah. didn't. I didn't know there was beer sherpa. Yeah. Sweet. Do I the wanna, sherpa. Well, I was thinking about a malty beer, and oh, you should think uh, about a malty beer. Yeah. You know, what's a good malty beer? Because we can't recommend a mecca grade thing, because no one will. Uh, even I had a hard time finding them. It's not really. Yeah, that, that common yet. Yeah, unless you're in Southern California, I guess. That's right. Um, <laughs> so I, I was thinking of a, one of the one of my favorite malty beers uh, is uh, Traquair tra- tra- House, uh, which is a Scottish uh, sort of like I guess you'd say a wee heavy. Okay. Eight um, percent beer, seven and a half, eight percent beer, made oh, on this. We about that heavy? <laughs> no, it's <laughs> she's heavy, heavy. Uh, it's it's built it's in this old. You would love this story. I can't believe you don't know the story. I don't know this. Uh, it's a it's on an old uh, Traquair House is an ancient uh, uh, estate. Okay, like a Scottish castle. Right. The lady of Traquair is now the the resides in that. Her father was the one who started the brewery. He discovered it in mm-hmm. one of the outbuildings in 1965. Started brewing on it, and it was crude. It was super, super crude. And they fermented in these old wooden vessels. Uh-huh. Uh, open fermentation, and they would put these kind of wooden lids on them. Um, and he made this thing called Traquair House. Uh, Traquair House Ale. Mm-hmm. And it was from an old recipe that he he dug up. And they've been making it ever since then, and it is spectacular. And it is 100% a malt Fiesta. So everything about it is all about uh, the, the yeast plays a, a, a role too. But the malt is just spectacular. Wow. And even for people who think that they don't like um, malty beers, they're too sweet, they're too you know one one dimensional. Um, this one will you'll you'll be happy. This one is it's drier. Uh, the alcohol is strong enough to carry it over, uh-huh. um, and it is just a really wonderful, spectacular beer. And they so, export. Yeah, you can buy it at grocery stores. Wow. All right. Well, all over America, all imported the, by Merchant Duvan, which is one of the like first yep, importers. Yep, so. Another uh, cool. I'll take a look for it. Yeah, great beer. All right, uh, thanks very much for listening to the podcast. A few words going out about how to contact us. Jeff, of course, blogs at the Beervana blog, uh, which has a new address. It's beervanablog.com. Uh, tweets at at Beervana, and Patrick blogs at Beeronomics and tweets at. At Beeronomics. And you're about to go to Europe in a while. And I want you to be tweeting from Europe. Tweet pictures. Like when you're in a pub, take a photograph. Boom. Get yeah. that thing on the tweet, man. I will, yeah, I'll, I'll work hard to get into pubs. I have a, I have a non-beer drinking wife. So this is going to be a... This will be interesting. But you, you, you did a very good job selling her on the, on the historic and um, tourist value of visiting certain pubs in, yeah. in the Czech Republic and Germany. So thank you for that. Ufleku. Everybody will tell you, you got to go to Ufleku. Okay. So definitely. All right. Well, I, I will do, I will do my best. I'll also be in Mexico. In fact, I've been, I've been scheming. Like, I wonder if it's possible for you to like take a growler and bring that back from Ufleku. <laughs> like, I wonder if they could do that. Uh, I, I might be able to do that, but 
it's for you, so I probably wouldn't bother. I, I've been I've been pondering like, how do I get him to do that? <laughs> First of all, I don't know if it's possible, and second, he's just do they, bo- do they bottle? No, oh. that pub is the only place on the planet to get their beer, oh. and it is extraordinary. Okay, well, also a great hot, uh, great malt beer that I could have mentioned. It's a Chernay, um, or it's a Tamave. These two words are kind of describe the same beer, and breweries choose one or the other depending mm-hmm. on. It's a dark beer. Anyway, okay. it's a dark beer, and um, by God, it's a damn fine beer. I'll see what I can do. Uh, okay. Uh, anyway, tweet. Tweet when you're out there. I, I will do my best. All right. Uh, email. You can email us at jeff at beervonablog.com. Excellent. I'm so excited that when you're no longer doing yahoo.com. Uh, <laughs> or, or, or visit the Beer Vana blog Facebook page. Either way is a good way to get in touch with us. Um, right. But any way you can get in touch with us, please do, because we'd love to hear from you. So send us your questions, comments, and uh, tell me the price of a pint in a craft brewery near you, please. Right, and since we're on this this uh, Cinco de Mayo thing, if you actually know how it got started in America, that would complete the whole thing. So let us know. All right, so lots of lots of work, lots of homework for you. So uh, we don't actually... We only have one beer, so it's hard to cheers. Oh, you're gonna grab the can. Okay. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.